Welcome to the Harvest Bible Chapel of Winston-Salem podcast. We believe in proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology, lifting high the name of Jesus through worship, believing firmly in the power of prayer, and sharing the good news of Jesus with boldness. For more information, visit harvestws.org. Here's this week's message. So glad to see your faces this morning, and I hope you're ready to get into God's Word. You ready? I hope you're ready. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. And we begin, as was already said um, throughout our worship and our announcements this morning, that we are beginning this new series today in the book of Nehemiah entitled, The God who builds. And here's what we mean by that. And you're going to hear this throughout the 13 weeks that we're going to be walking through this book, that we use that, and I've used that in title to mean this, that God is faithful. Let me just say that again, in case you needed to be reminded today. God is faithful. Look to the person next to you and say that. God is faithful. Faithful to do what? Well, I'm glad you asked. God is faithful to remember and act upon his promises to do what? To build his people. So if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2 says you are a workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand before you even put your faith and trust in Christ. God in his sovereign will prepared beforehand the good works that he desires you to do. He's faithful and act. He's faithful to remember and act upon his promises to build his people and his church, which means this church. He's faithful. He's going to continue to build this church. But here's the deal. Not just this church, not just Harvest Bible Chapel, Winston-Salem, but other churches that stand on the gospel in Winston-Salem. I don't know if you knew this or not, but we're not the only church. Didn't know if you knew that, so newsflash today. There's other great churches in this area that stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we need those churches if we're going to reduce lostness in this area. In this nation, there's churches that God is building. In this world, he's building his church. For what purpose? For his glory. That's what we mean by the God who builds, that that's the God who we serve. And so before we read and get into Nehemiah 1, I give you, want to give you like a 30,000 aerial foot view to lead you up to where we will find ourselves in Nehemiah 1. So are you ready for this? You better buckle your safety belts. We're going quick. All right, you ready for this? So God made a promise all the way back in the book of Genesis to Abraham that Abraham and you, all the nations of the earth, will be blessed. That out of your seed, I'm going to build a people. And so God makes that promise to Abraham. And over many, many years of it seeming like God was never going to follow through on that promise, God finally gives Abraham a son that he promised, even though Abraham went his own way and tried to figure it out. But eventually God gives Abraham a son, and his name is Isaac. And out of Isaac, he builds the nation of Israel. Now fast forward to the book of Exodus. The people of Israel find themselves in the captivity and they're in captivity under Egyptian rule. And it seems like all hope is lost and Israel is enslaved as a people and, and being abused as a people. But God is faithful to do what? To remember and act upon his promises. 
And so God, in the midst of their slavery, in the midst of hearing their cries, in the midst of of hearing uh, their persecution and knowing what's going on, God is faithful and he remembers his covenant, he remembers his promise, and so he raises up a man named Moses. And Moses is used by God to lead the people of Israel out of captivity towards a land that he promises that he will show them. But because Israel is stubborn like we are, let's not be too hard on on the history of Israel in the Old Testament, they begin to doubt God's goodness, doubt God's provision, doubt that God is faithful to keep his promises. And so they begin to rebel. And because of their rebellion, God causes Israel to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years and actually allows that generation that doubted God, that chose to not believe in God's promises for that generation to die off. So then we come to the book of Joshua, and God raises up another man just like he did with Moses. He raises up Moses' right-hand man, Joshua. And Joshua takes that second generation, that people of Israel, that did believe in God's promises, and he leads them into the nation that God has given them. And so now you fast forward now and you're in the book of 1 Samuel and Israel started to get to the point where they were like, man, we don't like this theocracy, this God being our king. We want a physical king. We want to be like the other nations that surround us. And so God calls Samuel to go find a king and Samuel finds this very tall in stature, probably muscular man, I mean the man's man. The Bible describes that in in 1 Samuel that he was head and shoulders taller than every other man. So he's the guy that you would literally pick out of a crowd and say, I don't know that guy, but I want to follow that guy. And so Samuel chooses Saul to be king, and Saul rules over Israel as their king. But here's the reality. Saul forgets to remember God's promises and to follow God with all of his heart. And so God eventually takes his anointing off of Saul, and God tells Samuel, Samuel, I want you to go find another king. So Samuel goes to Jesse's house, and, and God tells Samuel to go to Jesse's house, and he goes to Jesse's house, and he tells Jesse, Jesse, bring out all your sons, and so Jesse does that. He brings out all of his sons, and Samuel looks at these, these young men, and he looks at those that are strong, and those that are talented, and those that seem to be just like Saul, and you know the story, if you spend any time in his word, that God tells Samuel, Samuel, those are not who I want. And so Samuel, being perplexed, goes back to Jesse and say, Jesse, you have any more sons? He's like, well, I got a youngest son, but he's out keeping my sheep. And you know the story. Samuel says, get that son. And that son comes, and that son is David. And and God tells Samuel to anoint David king. And after a period of time of waiting where David's running for his life because Saul is jealous of David, David becomes king. And Israel flourishes. Israel experiences prosperity that they've never experienced before. And then King David has another son, and his name is Solomon. And Solomon takes the throne when David dies. And they experience even more prosperity. And Solomon is spoken of as the wisest king that ever ruled in Israel. And at the end of his life, Solomon writes a book of Ecclesiastes because he figures something out that in spite of having all the wealth and and everything you could imagine, he realizes that it's all vanity. And so Solomon has some sons. But here's the reality. They weren't like Solomon and they weren't like David. See, they were wicked. And so Solomon's sons take over. And fast forward, what happens is now you have Israel, instead of being one nation, because of rifts and because of rebellion and because of not following God and what he had called them to do, there began this rift. And now you have a northern kingdom and you have a southern kingdom. 
and the northern kingdom, king after king after king, were wicked. There was never a good king in the northern kingdom. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians come in and they take over the northern kingdom and they disperse all the Israelites into the Assyrian kingdom. Now, Judah fared much better. Because what Judah in their history, the southern kingdom, is you had a good king, a godly king, and then you'd have a wicked king. And then you'd have a godly king, and then you'd have another wicked king. And so there'd be up and down, and God in his mercy would bring judgment, bring consequences, and then a godly king would rise up. But here's the reality. 136 years after the northern kingdom fell, the southern kingdom falls, and they fall under Babylon. And Babylon takes over the southern kingdom and does the same thing as the Assyrians. They disperse the people everywhere, all the Israelites. They take them every place throughout the Babylon Babylon empire. But then, you know, God in his sovereignty, and God, because he's in control, because he's faithful to remember and act upon his promises, he rises up Persia, and Persia overthrows the Babylonians. And now Persia rules over the southern kingdom of Judah. And there's this king that God in his sovereignty raises up who has no no desire at all to want to believe in Almighty God, but he makes a decree. Cyrus makes a decree, and he makes this decree that Israel, that that the Jews can actually go back to Jerusalem, and they can actually rebuild the temple, the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. And so Ezra and Nehemiah, which is the book right before Nehemiah, go hand in hand. And so Ezra takes these group of people back to Jerusalem and begin building the temple. And it takes them 20 years to build it because of so much opposition that they experience. But here's the reality. Then in Ezra, in the beginning part of Ezra in chapters 1 through 6, Ezra and the people start to rebuild the walls. And King Artaxerxes hears about it and stops it and burns those walls down and the gates that they've already constructed by fire so that they can't rebuild their walls and they can't rebuild their gates because that was the protection that they were given. And Artaxerxes did not want that, which leads us into the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah starts 13 years after the book of Ezra begins. And so I say all that, that was a fast ride, wasn't it? I say all that to now get us into Nehemiah chapter 1. And we're actually going to look through this entire chapter of of 11 verses. And here's the overarching idea that I want you to get today. Understanding that we serve a God who builds. Understanding that he wants to build into your life. Understanding that he wants to build this church. Understanding that he wants to use this church to be a part of building the church in Winston-Salem, and in this state, and in this nation, and in this world. That's what God desires, not for our glory, not for your glory, but for his glory. So here's the idea, is that you and I have a privilege, and I use that word for a reason. We have a privilege. Is it a responsibility? Yes. Is it a desire? Yes. But we have a privilege of living in partnership with this God who builds. That I've been given the amazing and awesome opportunity to not just live in relationship with God because of 
what Jesus Christ has done for me through his perfect life, perfect death, and perfect resurrection. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, that I get the privilege, that I have been given the privilege to live in partnership with the God who builds. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. Here's my privilege. That I get to live all of my life and all that I've been given for all of God's glory. That's what it means to live in partnership with the God who builds. That it's me saying, Lord, I'm living all of my life and all that you have given me. So everything that I have, my career, my resources, my talents, my time, my kids, my relationship with my spouse, whatever, wherever you are, that those things have been given to you by Almighty God, not to use for yourself, but to accomplish His purposes for His glory. That's what we mean. And so I want to give you this morning four characteristics of someone who is living in partnership with the God who builds. Because if that's what God has called his children to be about, what does it look like for someone who is embracing that responsibility and that privilege? What does it look like for them? What, is it, what does that person, or should I say, what does that person look like? What are the characteristics of that person? How are they living their life? Because here's what I find interesting. Before we ever get to the wall that Nehemiah is called to build and called to rally the people of Israel to all chip in and build, Nehemiah 1 focuses on the man, focuses on his character. And here's an important idea when we, before we even get into Nehemiah, before we read this passage of Scripture, that God is always first about doing a work in you before he ever desires to do a work through you. That God is as concerned, if not more concerned, about doing a work in you before we ever focus on what God wants to do through us. And I love that that's the way that Nehemiah 1 starts out. So here's the first characteristic, and it's found in verses 1 through 4, and we'll read it here in a moment after I give it to you. Here's the first one, that there is a concern that I have a concern, that you have a concern over the condition of ourselves and others. It's the first characteristic of someone who lives in partnership with the God who builds. Look at verses 1 through 4. Here's where that idea comes out of. It says in verse 1, Nehemiah says, Now it happened in the month of Chislev, when that would be November in our calendar, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, so this would have been the winter residence of King Artaxerxes, that Hanai, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem, which is why I gave you that context. The Jews that had survived and are back in Jerusalem after Cyrus makes that decree. Now here's what's interesting. Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. Nehemiah had never been to the southern kingdom of Judah. Nehemiah was actually born in exile. So Susa in Persia would have been his home. He actually lived 800 miles from Jerusalem. Which is interesting that he still asks about what's going on with his, 
with his fellow brothers and sisters in his nation. Look at verse 3. And they said to me, these people that came from Jerusalem, they said to me, Nehemiah, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. Why? The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now here's what you need to understand. In today's context, you're like gates and walls. Yeah, I could live with them, could live without them, right? Like I remember when I lived in Naples, everything was behind a gate, right? So here, if you say you live behind a gated community, people are like, oh, you live behind a gated community. (laughs) In Naples, apartment complexes were behind gated communities. And it wasn't because of crime. It was just so that everyone could say in Naples, I live behind a gated community. But gates and walls in this time period, here's what you need to understand, is they were more important than even an army because the gates and walls were their safety and their protection. You have an army, but you don't have gates and walls. You're susceptible to the enemy's attack 24-7. This was a monumental deal to the city of Jerusalem. And when I look at this passage of Scripture in verses 1 through 4, the reason why I say the first characteristic of someone who's going to live in partnership with a God who builds is they ought to have concern over the condition of themselves and others is because I look at verse 2 and I see these words in verse 2 that, that it says that when Nehemiah's brothers or fellow countrymen from Jerusalem come that Nehemiah does this. It says, and I asked them. Like Nehemiah actually asked the tough question. Because I believe if we're going to have concern over the condition of ourselves and others, that means that we need to have a sensitivity to ask the tough questions, get this, of myself first. Because here's the dangerous mindset, and and I've been like this, and chances are you can identify with this, that, that when it comes to asking the tough questions, we oftentimes have this mindset. If I don't ask, then I don't know, which means it doesn't exist, right? If I don't ask, well, then I don't know, Therefore, it doesn't exist to me. I mean, I play this game all the time, especially like, I know, like, we have some dentists in our church. So let me say, this is nothing against you. But man, I do not like going to the dentist. There is something about, like, of all the doctors, there's something about someone sticking their hands inside of my mouth and having very sharp objects inside of my mouth that makes me feel extremely vulnerable. Like, I'd go to a physical any day over someone looking inside my mouth. And I take that philosophy all the time. Like, I hate to even go get my teeth clean. You're like, man, don't you love that feeling when your teeth are clean? Yeah, that's a great feeling, but it's the process before you get there. Because in my mindset, it's like, well, if I don't know, if I don't ask, then I don't know, and it doesn't exist, right? That's many times how we live our life. Is that we don't ask of ourselves the tough questions. That we're not constantly taking inventory of our life and saying, man, do I have concern over the condition of my life? 
Am I actually asking myself, where have the walls been torn down in my spiritual walk with the Lord? Where have I torn them down? Where are they weak because I'm not giving attention to them? Let me look and let me see where I'm, I'm getting lax on this or that. Here's some interesting questions that I came up with, personal questions that we need to ask of ourselves. I'm going to go through them quick. Here's the first one. Is there any unconfessed sin in my life? That's the question I always ought to be asking myself. Is there any sin in my life that is unconfessed? In relationship with God, vertically, or horizontally in relationship with others? Here's another question. How is my relationship with the Lord? How would I characterize my relationship with the Lord? Are those walls strong? Are they torn down? Are they in shambles? How's my relationship with the Lord? Do I spend time in his word every day? Am I praying to him? Am I getting on my knees with a list, praying out loud, seeking God for the things that are ahead of me? How's my relationship with the Lord? How am I loving my wife or husband? Like, Lord, let me look at my life. If I'm married and say, how am I loving my wife? How am I loving my husband. How about this? What's my relationship like with my kids? God, let me look at your word and then look at my life and say, am I being the dad that you desired me to be for my children? Am I being the mom that you desired me to be for my children? Am I being the grandfather you desire to be for my children? Am I my grandchildren? Am I a grandmother and looking at your word and saying, am I being the grandmother that you desire me to be for my grandchildren? It's asking it's having sensitivity to actually ask rather than saying, well, if I don't ask, then I, then I uh, don't know and it doesn't exist. How about how am I loving my friends? Like, am I a friend that I would want? Is there a sensitivity to ask the tough questions of myself? Because Nehemiah asked a tough question. But not just in relation to ourselves, but what about my relationship to others? What about your relationship to others that God has put you in contact with sovereignly? Like Nehemiah is concerned enough to say, what's going on with other people? Here's some questions to ask in relation to that. Am I self-absorbed and selfish? Like, do I even think to ask? Let me ask, how are you really doing? Like when I go up to someone, am I saying, how are you doing? I'm fine. I already talked about what I, how I dislike that word. I'm fine. No, but how are you really doing? Like we don't even realize that we ask that question, right? Like I found out when I was up in Chicago with guys that were international from Africa and 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 uh, all over Haiti and the Caribbean and all these different places that churches were being planted, I found out that how often we ask this question in American culture, and we don't even realize how ridiculous it is to people who aren't in our culture. Like you say, hey, how's it going? And they actually started to tell you. And then you're like, what did I say? Right? But actually saying, how are you really doing? Because that's what Nehemiah does. He has concern over the condition, not just of himself, but also of others. Here's another question. What needs to change in our relationship? 
Guys, when's the last time you asked that of your wives? Well, if I don't ask, then I don't know, and therefore it doesn't exist. Or wives, how is our relationship doing? Or your friends, how's our relationship doing? Here's another one. This is the last one. Let me ask, what are the needs in my church? Let me ask that. Where are the needs where I work? Where are the needs with my neighbors? Like, let me, going back to that question, how are, how are you really doing? Like, believing that God has placed you where you live and where you work and, 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 and where you go to church for a reason. You know what it is? It's to live in partnership with the God who builds to make a difference. As we look at this passage of Scripture, it's the first characteristic that we see in Nehemiah that God desires of someone who lives in partnership with him is to have concern over the condition of ourselves. Here's what this looks like every day. Here's what this looks like in me and what I need to pray every day. You ready for this? Here's the prayer. God, would you give me your eyes to see what you want me to see? And would you give me your ears to hear what you want me to hear? That's a prayer that we ought to be praying every day. God, would you give me your eyes to see what you want me to see? Help me not to be self-absorbed. God, would you give me ears to hear what you want me to hear, to actually be cognizant and to actually listen to the needs that are around me and the relationships that are around me. Nehemiah had a concern over the condition not just of, of himself, but of others. Here's the second characteristic. It's found in verse 5. Would you look at verse 5 with me? Look at verse 5. Nehemiah finds out the condition of the walls and the gates of the city of Jerusalem. It weighs so heavy on him, as we're going to see here in a few moments. And look at what Nehemiah does in the midst of this crisis. Look at what he says in verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now I want to go back to this reality. Nehemiah never lived in Jerusalem. Nehemiah was born in captivity. 800 miles he lived from Jerusalem. But evidently, Nehemiah spent time in God's word. Because he says, God, here's what I know in the midst of this crisis, in the midst of the condition that I've been made aware of. Here's what I know. Here's the thing that I can bank on. Here's the conviction that I have, that I have a conviction. It's the second characteristic of someone who is in partnership with the God who builds. There is a conviction about God's character. And it's a conviction that's not rooted in circumstances, but it's a conviction that's rooted in God's word. Because in verse 5, the way that Nehemiah, the way that he describes God, tells me that Nehemiah spent time in God's word. How did we define the God who builds? God is faithful to remember and act upon his promises to build his people and his church for his glory. Notice what it says in verse 5, that Nehemiah calls God the great and awesome God who keeps covenant. That Nehemiah was aware, God, I remember the covenant that you made all the way back with Abraham. 
I remember that you promised to show steadfast love, that word, Hebrew word is said, that covenant love, that love through thick and thin. That there was a conviction about God's character, but it was rooted in God's word. Here's the dangerous thing. Is that oftentimes we love to deduce God's character, not based on his word, but based on circumstances. Right? So if I'm going in through a difficult circumstance that's troubling and it's crisis that, that I so easily can allow that crisis to shape my view of who God is. And if we allow circumstances to shape our view of who God is, it's not just going to affect our view of God, it's going to affect our service to God, it's going to affect our worship to God. And I don't see Nehemiah do this based on how he actually calls God in verse 5. See, here's things. I want to give you some things that you say and that I can often say that will skew my conviction about God's character. Here's one. My circumstances are too big for God. Here's what I know. There's people in this room that are going through some very heavy things. And a lie that you can believe is, this is too big for God. It's too big for God. Here's another one. I don't need help. I have this. I got this. Don't need to call out to God. I got this. Here's another one. God doesn't care about me. God doesn't care about me. I mean, children of Israel surely could have thought that at different points in their history. God doesn't care about me, but you don't see Nehemiah say that here. How about this? God did that, but not this, not again. Like how many of us have said that? God did that, but not this. No, no, not again. Can I be honest? Can I be transparent with you? Is I found myself there so many times. I found myself there, if you know our story, when God called us to leave Naples, where we were for 10 years, to, to, to join Harvest and to go up to a training center for four months, not knowing what the end of that story would be. I mean, I, this hit home in my life in that time. Because 10 years earlier, God called us to go and plant churches in Naples, and we left northern Pennsylvania. But I remember saying this to myself, God, I was 30 Last time I did this, I was 30. Now I'm 40. A little more established. Maybe have a little more experience. My kids were three years old in three months. They didn't know what was going on. Now they're 12 and 9. Like, God, we were moving from Pennsylvania, northern rural Pennsylvania, to Naples, Florida. It doesn't take too much convincing to do that. Now you're asking us to leave Naples, Florida, go to Chicago for four months in the wintertime. And we're moving not even knowing if that meant to, to plant a church or to serve in an existing church. Now, I don't say that at all. Get this. I don't say that at all. So you say, oh, Johnny's the hero of this story because here's why I'm sharing you that with you. is because I thought so often these circumstances are too big for God. I thought so often, I don't need help in this. I got this. I thought so often, man, God, 
You did that. But this, again, and what I had to do to deal with those thoughts and those circumstances is I had to take the discipline to get into God's Word and allow God's Word to shape once again my conviction of His character. Because here's the things that we do need to believe about God that are actually found in verse 5. Nehemiah calls God, O Lord God of heaven. You know what that tells me? Here's a characteristic about our God and His character. That God transcends our circumstances. That Nehemiah doesn't call God God of Israel. But he says, God of heaven. In other words, God, you dwell in heaven. You dwell in a place that transcends circumstances. You're not affected by circumstances. You're not affected by the reality that King Artaxerxes actually stopped these walls. And now you're asking me to go and ask him again. And my life actually could be taken because I'm going back to him to reverse something that he already decided. Nehemiah says, Lord, I'm reminding myself that you transcend circumstances. Look at what else he says. He calls him the great and awesome God. Here's here's something I need to believe about God's character, that God is big, get this, and you are not. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're not big. Like, I just got a lot of your attention. You're like, ooh, I want to say that to the person next to me. Yeah. Nehemiah says, Lord, you're the great and awesome God. God, you're big. I'm not. Here's what else he says. Look at what he says. Who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Here's the third thing we need to believe about God's character based on this verse that Nehemiah quotes, that God is faithful. He's loving, and he never changes. He never changes. It's part of his character. It's the doctrinal word. He's immutable. He never changes me. I can change all the time. I can be happy one day, angry the next. I can be happy in an hour and angry the next hour. And you're the same way, but God never changes. So I never need to say and need to think, God, you did that, but not this, not again, because God never changes. And Nehemiah had a conviction because it was based in God's word of what he read in the Old Testament that God is faithful to act and remember upon his promises. And we can say today, that's a reality, that he wants to build you and he wants to build me and he wants to build this church and he wants to build his church across the globe for his honor and his glory. Here's the third thing. Third characteristic, confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Look at what it says in verse 6 through 10. Here's this prayer now of Nehemiah after he has reminds himself of God's character. God's character actually fuels his confession and repentance, his posture towards God. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayers of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Which that tells me that Nehemiah just didn't start praying for people and have a concern over other people other than himself right when his brothers came and told him the plight of Israel. He'd been doing this over and over again. Just confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. 
Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant saying, he's about to quote Deuteronomy 4, God, I'm remembering, I'm remembering your character and your character is fueling my confession. I'm remembering what you promised. I'm remembering that you never change. That what you did in the past, you can do again. Look at what he says. If you are unfaithful, this is God speaking, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. You know what I see, or should I say what I don't see in Nehemiah 1, 6 through 10, is he never blames God. He doesn't say, God, you forgot me, and you forgot your people, and that's why these walls are broken down. That's why these gates have been destroyed by fire. That's why the people in Jerusalem are open to the enemy's attacks. It's you doesn't do that. He takes inventory of his own heart and the people, and he says, we need to confess. We need to repent. Because this has happened so that we would turn our eyes back to you. See, I'm not saying that every circumstance that happens in our life is because of sin, because that would be torturous in our minds. No way I'm saying that. God's Word doesn't say that. But there is an aspect that if we are going to live in partnership with the God who builds and be people that God desires to use to accomplish his purposes here on this earth, that we need to have a lifestyle of confession and repentance. I want to give you three characteristics of what that looks like. Because oftentimes there's a lot of confusion on, well, what does it look like for me to confess and repent? Here's the first thing that I see in verse 6. Nehemiah says, we've sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Like, Nehemiah even puts himself in that boat. And you might, if you're paying attention, you would say, well, Nehemiah didn't even live in Israel. He didn't even, he didn't even dwell there. But yet he's putting himself in the same boat. And Nehemiah's just saying, Lord, I know I've sinned. I know there's been times where I've gone my own way. And I'm no better than anybody else. So here's the first characteristic of confession and repentance. It's directed towards God and it's not about me. That when I examine my heart and I see that there's sin in my life that I'm saying, Lord, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against you. God, I want to see my sin the way that you see my sin. Here's a second characteristic. It's motivated by godly sorrow, not selfish regret. How often is that true of our confession and repentance? Well, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry for the consequences that I'm experiencing rather than, God, I'm sorry because I sinned against you. That I believe that this could give me what only you can give me. That there's an idea of brokenness there. There's brokenness in my heart that I'm seeing my sin in the situation through your eyes, not my eyes. That, there, that there's not this selfish regret that I'm sorry for what I got caught and I'm experiencing the consequences of my sin. And here's the third characteristic, and here's the hope. 
Because it's not me beating down on myself, but it's me acknowledging when I've done wrong. Is man, when I'm confessing and I'm repenting of my sin, I'm looking to Jesus, right? I'm looking to Jesus for deliverance from the penalty and power of sin. I mean, that's what Nehemiah does in verse 10. He says, these people, they're your servants. They're your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. And isn't that what Jesus has done for us? That Jesus lived perfection, a perfect life, because my life wasn't perfect. So he substituted his perfect life for my sinful life, and then he died on the cross for my sin, paying the debt that my sin deserved. He was my substitute. And then three days later, he rose from the grave and had victory over sin and death, so that if I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ... I can have victory over the power of sin. So in my life, and as I walk in partnership with the God who builds, I ought to have a lifestyle of confession and repentance. It ought to be just part of what I'm doing. I'm asking myself the tough questions going back to concern over the condition of ourselves. I like to describe it like this, that confession and repentance... It's kind of like a tire gauge, tire pressure gauge. So when we were moving up here, you know, that thing that goes off in your car, if you have one of those indicators that goes off, and doesn't it go off at the worst times, right? So ours went off, and we were on a trip, and so I was like, good grief. Like, I don't want to stop. We're going to waste time. I have to go to the gas station. and I have to check the tire pressure. Do I have any quarters in the car? You know, all that stuff. But then I thought to myself, well, my wife is actually driving that car, so it's probably a good idea that as a good husband that I take care of that, right? But what does low pr- tire pressure do? It affects the handling of your car, right? It affects the alignment of your car. It affects whether or not you actually are on the side of the road with a blown out tire, right? Worst case scenario. And so what do you do when you see that the tire pressure is low? You go to that tire, you take the tire gauge, and you put it on the, uh, whatever that little thing is that sticks out of the tire, and you test it, and you see if it has the correct tire pressure, right? Why? Because you want that car to handle well. You want that car to drive straight. You want that car not to be on the side of the road because the tire's blown out. And that's so much what confession and repentance is. I like to say it this way, you can tell the quality of your relationship and the health of your relationship with God and other people when you ask yourself this question, when's the last time I've uttered the words, I'm sorry, will you forgive me for fill in the blank? I can always tell the health of my relationship with Lori when I think to myself, when's the last time I've said, I'm sorry, Lori, will you forgive me for blank? And if it's been a long time, I may have the temptation to think, well, I'm doing pretty good. But then I get hit with the reality stick from the Holy Spirit that that's not the case. Confession and repentance is a way that we're constantly saying to ourselves, God, what's the condition of my heart? Let me constantly have a lifestyle, as Martin Luther says, the reformist, of a, of a lifestyle of repentance because it's going to affect the way I handle life. It's going to affect whether I'm walking 
in step with the Lord. It's going to affect whether or not I have a blowout and I'm on the side of the road having to deal with something far worse. Nehemiah understands the importance of confession and repentance. And let me say this again in case you forgot. God does a work in the person before he ever does a work through the person. God, I want to live a lifestyle of confession and repentance. And here's the last thing. And it's found as we close out this chapter in verse 11. Look at it with me. Nehemiah says, O Lord, after he prays this prayer of confession and repentance, he says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And I love how that last phrase, just a side note, now, I was a cupbearer to the king. Like, why did Nehemiah say that at the end of the chapter and not at the beginning? See, here's the fourth characteristic of someone who lives in partnership with the God who builds. There's a confidence that God desires to use you and use me to accomplish his will. Nehemiah was one person. One person person born in exile, had never been to Jerusalem, had never seen those walls that were torn down, had never seen those gates that were destroyed by fire. He was one person, but he rose to a position of influence in the king's court, King Artaxerxes. Why? So that he could eat the best food, so that he could drink the best wine, so that he could wear the best clothes, so that he could live in a palace. Because a cupbearer was the king's, one of the king's most trusted people. Why? Because he ate the food before the king did. And if they poison the food, guess what? Nehemiah dies, not the king. But the king has to trust that Nehemiah actually ate the food. And Nehemiah understood, God, I'm not in this position just so that I can live a lifestyle of luxury. Starting to dawn on me now, God based on the conditions of my brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem, that I have this position for a reason. Because you want to use me. It's not about me getting fat and happy. It's about me using my platform to make a difference for your honor and your glory. See, we're one of three types of people in this room. Self-absorbed. It's all about me. Like the position I have, the things that I have, the talents that I have, the time that I have. It's all about me. Spend it all on me. Think about me. It's all about me. There's that person in this room. Then there's the self-loathing. And here's what that person says. God can never use me. God can't use me. I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ but I'm on the side of the road. My tire's blown out. God can't use me anymore. It's a lie of the enemy. I don't find that in God's word. Here's a third type of person, the one that's surrendered to his will, that says, God, here am I. Use me. Use me. You know, as the band comes out, What I want us, and more importantly, what God wants us to do this morning is you may be here today 
and you say to yourself, you know what? I remember there was a time where God used me. I remember there was a time where God allowed me to be part of something bigger than myself, but I haven't seen that in a long time. That I'm glad you're here. Because God desires to build his people and his church for his glory. And what he's looking for is men and women who live in relationship with God, who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who have a concern over their lives. Where are the walls torn down? Where have I put my guard down? What haven't I given attention to? Lord, let me, let me get back and in step with you, let me rebuild those things that I've torn down or circumstances, I've allowed circumstances to tear down. God, I'm going to have concern and I'm going to ask the tough questions of myself and also I'm going to be concerned about others and I'm going to be the friend and be the husband and be the person that you desire me to be. I have concern over other people, not just myself. God, I, I want to have a conviction about your character. I want to allow not circumstances, but your word to shape and to grow and to strengthen my concept of who you are. You're a great and awesome God who keeps his promises, who's steadfast in his love towards me. God, I want to have a lifestyle of confession and repentance. God, I want to keep a short account with you. And God, I want to have confidence, not because I'm something special, but because you want to use me. You want to use me to build what you want to build. Let's get back to that. Let's get back to that. We're going to sing a song. Gray's going to sing over us. And what I want us to do in the, as he's doing that is I want us just to examine our hearts. See, first of all, you may be here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so what I want you to do is if, you've, if God's gripped your heart and you see that it's not the good that you do, but it's what Jesus Christ has done for you through his life, death, and resurrection, we can't do any good to warrant God's favor. But Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again for you. And so maybe for you, it's you calling out in the quietness of your mind and saying, Lord, I'm gonna confess and repent of my sins. I'm gonna put my faith and trust in you. For others of us, maybe it's one of those characteristics if we're followers of Jesus Christ, we're like, man, my walls are torn down. My gates of my life are a mess. And it's you confessing and repenting of that sin, but at the same time also believing that Jesus died for that sin, that 1 John 1, 9, he's faithful and just to forgive you of that sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, that Jesus paid it all. And so it's renewing that confidence that, God, you desire to do a work in me again, again. That God desires to do a work again in this church. So as we sing this song, let's just take time to do inventory with God, to do business with God as we get into this series and remind ourselves of the great and awesome God who builds. He's faithful to remember and act upon his promises to build his people, his church, for his glory. Thanks for listening to the Harvest Bible Chapel Winston-Salem podcast. For more information, visit harvestws.org.